He holds me that I shall not fall. God moves in a mysterious way. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Christ is the sure, steady anchor, ever faithful, ever true. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, He will stay. Labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Such rich songs that are designed to help us face suffering and loss with steadfastness in the Lord Jesus. That's exactly what we're going to see in God's Word this morning. And so please turn in your copy of Scripture to the little New Testament book of James. Our plan is to study the book of James, a passage at a time on Sunday mornings for the next four or five months, God willing. And you, yes, you are invited to join us on this journey. We will save a seat for you. Sunday mornings at 10.30, right here as we study the book of James. Let's pray together, and then we'll read and study the first four verses of the book of James. Join me in praying to God. Father, every good and perfect gift is from you. Everything good, everything perfect that we experience right now in this moment is from You. You are the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, with whom there's no shadow due to change. You of Your own will brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of Your creation. And so we thank You. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you, that you have shaped us and fashioned us, that you have led us and guided us, that you have blessed us and provided for us, so that in this moment we could open your word and listen to your voice. That's what we want to do in this moment. We desperately need to hear from you. And so, would you speak to us? Holy triune God, would you open your word that we might understand and know and be convinced of its truth? Lord, I pray for those in this room that need to repent of their sins, which is all of us. I pray that we would turn away from our selfishness and pride and I pray we would turn in humility to you even now. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are hurting and in pain and grieving. I pray that your word would bring the comfort and the healing and the medicine that we need. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus and we would want to follow him with all of our hearts. Lord, I ask you for your help now, for your strength. May your power be made perfect in my weakness. We 
pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It is a massive privilege and blessing to stand here, to read God's word, and to preach God's word to you this morning. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. Well, this letter written by James is a powerful little book about how faith in Jesus should make a difference in our lives. The message of the book of James is that real faith is active and produces maturity and holiness. To seriously study the book of James is kind of like stepping into the ring with a heavyweight boxer. The punches are forceful and they are relentless, but these punches are not meant to knock us out. They are meant to awaken us. They are meant to awaken us from the slumbers of our indifference and our mediocrity. Or if the boxer illustration is too violent for you, the book of James is like buckets of cold water splashed on our sleepy faces. James is jarring. James is startling if you honestly study it. You see, James will not allow us to claim to have faith in Jesus and then live as if that faith makes no difference in our lives. James wants us to know that it's impossible, impossible to claim to follow Jesus and then live indifferent to Jesus and His commands. So church family, prepare to be challenged over the next several months as we confront our mediocrity and our lackadaisical apathy. And before we look at these first few verses in detail, let me give you just sort of an overview or introduction to the whole book. Notice that this letter is written by James. The author identifies himself right there in verse 1. This is most likely the James who was Jesus' half-brother and also a leader in the early church. And so this isn't the apostle James. He died in Acts chapter 12. Uh, this is probably the half-brother of Jesus who was an unbeliever during Jesus' life and ministry, but then came to faith after Jesus died and rose from the dead. James's humility is evident from the beginning of this letter as he describes himself, notice in verse 1, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of claiming some sort of special status or title because he was either related to Jesus or a leader in the early church, he simply describes himself here as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. You see, for James, physical relation to Jesus is not nearly as important as spiritual relation to Jesus. Jesus is James's master. Jesus is James's Lord. And so James writes all of this under the authority, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything in this book is written in submission to King Jesus. Notice also in verse 1 that we can identify James's audience or his recipients. We learned that James is probably writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered. That's what the word dispersion means. They've been scattered probably due to persecution. And so James is writing to these Jewish believers, but he, he knows them. This isn't just a general letter written to just any Christian anywhere. He knows them because throughout this letter, he affectionately refers to them as my brothers or my beloved brothers at least 15 times. He identifies them like that. We see this right here in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. And so evidently James has this personal and warm connection with his readers. He views them as part of the same family through the blood of Jesus. And so he's writing to fellow believers. Now, James is extremely direct in his rebuke and in his confrontation of his readers. And as we move through the letter of James, and as we see these strong rebukes, you've got to remember that James is, is lovingly rebuking these, these folks. He, he wants what is best for them. I hope you have a category for that, a loving rebuke. As Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. James' style is in your face. He's downright startling at times. In chapter 2, verse 20, James calls his readers foolish. In chapter 4, verse 4, he addresses them as you adulterous people. However, in all of these rebukes, we see James's fierce love for his brothers and his sisters in Christ. James uses a lot of illustrations. He uses lots of Old Testament references and lots of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what's the purpose of this letter? It's often hard to discern exactly what the purpose of the whole letter is. Is there sort of one unifying theme of this letter? Well, here's how I'd say it. James is immensely practical. This letter contains a higher frequency of imperative verbs than any other New Testament letter. James contains over 50 commands, 50 imperatives, in five short chapters. And so I think this tells us that James is concerned with holiness and godliness and obedience in the Christian life. James's emphasis is on the application of the gospel to our lives. And I think this is very important to understand because if you read the commentaries, if you read the scholars, if you hear a lot of sermons on James, you might hear critics point out how it seems like James contradicts Paul at several places. However, let me just say it as clearly as I know how. There is no contradiction between James and Paul. They are in complete harmony with one another. Paul's emphasis is on the indicative of the gospel, the realities, the facts of the gospel, what Christ accomplished for us. But James's emphasis is on the imperative of the gospel how we should live in light of what Christ has accomplished for us. 
You see, James is assuming his readers have the content of the Gospel right. This isn't the letter to the Galatians that's correcting their understanding of the Gospel. He doesn't write to correct their theology. He writes to correct their behavior. And if you don't understand this, you'll fall into legalism reading the book of James. James is not teaching us how to be made right before God. No, he's writing about how to demonstrate that you are right with God because of the finished work of Jesus. So the realities, the facts of the gospel should lead to lives of holiness and righteousness. In other words, the gospel works. The gospel works. It produces something in us. It's active in our lives, causing us to obey. The gospel produces the obedience of faith that James is calling us to through this letter. And so James is not saying that we earn God's favor by obeying His commands. No, he's saying if we have been born again, we will want to obey the commands of God. So church, the book of James is, is a message we need to hear in our culture today. James is crystal clear about the fact that we who love and cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ, we who rest in the finished work of Jesus, we who say, yet not I, but Christ in me, we should be the most radically obedient people of all. There should be a noticeable holiness about our lives because we have the power of the gospel at work in us. Because we have the gospel working in us to produce these good works that we are called to walk in. Now, that's an introduction to the entire book of James. Let's focus in more specifically and look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice how abrupt this first command seems to be. James greets his readers in verse 1, and then he immediately gives them this first imperative verb in verse 2. James doesn't assure his readers that he's praying for them. James doesn't thank God for them. James doesn't ease into this letter like we see in many of the other New Testament letters. And the first thing James addresses is the proper perspective of and response to suffering in our lives. He is writing to people who are encountering trials and he commands them to count it all joy. Now this is so relevant to us because we all know that life seems to be one trial after another. We all face things that are unexpected and unpleasant in this life. God governs the world in such a way that trials are inevitable. In fact, notice that James himself assumes the presence of trials in our lives. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if you meet trials. He doesn't say if perchance one day, somewhere down the road, you face something difficult, here's how you should respond to it. No, he says, when. Trials are given in this life. You will meet trials in this life. And notice that James is addressing the entire scope of trials that we face in this life. The phrase various kinds in verse 2 literally means many colored. I think James is being intentionally broad here so as to include every kind of suffering 
and every kind of trial that we could face as believers. There's not just one kind of trials that Christians face. God uses a lot of different colors when He paints. The type of trials we face are as numerous as people are. Some Christians are being persecuted and beaten and killed for their faith in Jesus. Some Christians are facing the death of loved ones. Some Christians are facing cancer and sickness and pain unthinkable. Some Christians are facing emotional and spiritual heartache. But all Christians are facing life in a fallen world where things are hard and victories are few. Pain and sorrow and suffering and death and sin and sickness and misery are the companions of us all. James says, we will face various trials. And we could spend all day detailing and considering all the varieties of suffering that exist in our lives, but James says, name a trial, any trial. Name a trial, any trial. And this is the way we should encounter it. And so I think verses 2 through 4 contain some of the most clear teaching on the proper Christian response to and perspective of suffering in all the Bible. Here's the burden of these first few verses of James. Here's how I would say it. James teaches us that we should have joy in trials because we know that God designs them for our good. James says we should have joy in trials because we know that God designs them for our good. Let's unpack that burden by looking at each of these three verses. In verse 2, James gives us the command. In verse 3, James gives us the reason to obey the command. And in verse 4, James tells us the goal of it all. And so let's look at the command, the reason, and the goal. First, the command in verse 2. According to verse 2, the proper response to the trials of our life is joy. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about suffering, joy is not the first thing that pops into my mind. Joy and trials seem like an odd couple. Like most people, like me, have joy when trials are gone, but God commands us to have joy in the midst of the trials. When you meet, when you encounter trials, count it all joy. And I'll be honest, having just walked through some and experiencing some various trials, this command seems like the most impossible command to obey in the whole Bible. This is so hard to do. Can we just admit that? Just don't just stick this on a coffee cup and say, oh yeah, when we meet trials, that's how we're going to respond. Because it's, it's not that easy. But this is God's Word. And this is God's will for us 
in our suffering. Notice that the command is to count, to consider, your translation may say. This is a command about how we think. It's a command about what we think about suffering. God is calling us to be accountants, to take a look at the trials in our lives and to count it, to consider it all joy. Now, as I meditate on this impossible command, it's clear that there is a ton of theological truth supporting and undergirding this command, right? I mean, how in the world are you going to count it all joy when you face pain and trial and and suffering if you don't know some things? And I think James is assuming a massive amount of understanding about who God is and how He governs. For example, if we are commanded to respond to, to, to trials with joy, it must mean that God is in control of our trials, right? It must mean that. It must mean that God is totally sovereign over whatever comes in our life. And not only is God in control of suffering, but this must mean that He has good plans for these trials in our lives. Whatever God ordains is right and good and faithful. And thus, we can have hope in the midst of the deepest pain and sorrow of this life. Otherwise, it would be impossible to count it as joy. If you didn't know these certain things, there's no way to obey this command. And so this command is teaching us about God. It's teaching us about His sovereignty and His goodness to His children. As long as we know that God is in control and He is for us, we can count it all joy when we meet various trials. So James is calling us to view our suffering from God's perspective. Not our own limited, skewed perspective. Now the kind of joy that we are to have is is obviously not the light, giddy, laughing kind of joy of this world. This is a firm and solid and enduring joy. Joy here is, is a deep sense of trust and confidence in God, in His sovereignty, in His goodness. Joy is, is a determination to accept what God brings into my life as ultimately good for me. Joy refuses to get mad at God, no matter what. Joy is sure that God has good plans for whatever trial He ordains. Joy is possible in the midst of loss and pain because God is sufficient and God has promised to never leave and never forsake us. Joy is the attitude of the song we sang earlier. So God, we trust in You. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in You. God commands us to respond to any and all trials with this kind of joy. Trials are inevitable. Some of them are minor hurdles. Some of them are heart-wrenching losses. Some of them are life-changing sorrows. But when you meet Mr. Trial, 
and misses suffering on the path of the Christian life, greet them with pure joy. Greet them with joy because your Father has sent them for your good, which is what we're about to see in verses 3 and 4. So the command is in verse 2, count it all joy. And then Paul, James gives us the reason in verse 3. Now listen, God doesn't always give us the reason to obey His commands. He's God. He can tell us what He wants to do without explanation. But He gives us, he gives us a reason here to obey the command. Notice the connection between verses 2 and 3. James says, for or because. Count it all joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Notice trials produce something. Trials produce something. Trials are productive, James says. Trials are not random. They're not purposeless. Trials test our faith and they produce steadfastness or perseverance, or endurance, or patience. The idea here is that to joyfully endure the trials of life, we have to have the proper perspective of those trials. The only reason we can meet trials with joy is because we know that they are ordained for our maturity. Now, it's amazing to me how many times the Scripture links perseverance and patience with suffering. In fact, it's going to be one of the enduring effects in my life of the book of Revelation and us studying that last year. How clear is it in the book of Revelation that the call on our lives is to hold tightly and not give up? Right? We, we aren't called to sharpen our swords so that we can go slay the great red dragon. Jesus has already done that. We aren't supposed to gather all of our resources together so that we can go overthrow the harlot of Babylon. No, we are called to the endurance of the saints. Be faithful to the end. Steadfastness wins the crown of life. Now, this is amazing to me. Because, friends, perseverance isn't something the culture around us values really at all. Perseverance always ranks behind things like strength and skill. But God sends trials into our lives to produce longevity, steadfastness, patience over time. The reason we can meet trials with joy is because it's, because it's producing this steadfastness in us. And so James says the point is to hold on. The point is to not give up. And one of the things I'm learning about steadfastness even now is that steadfastness has both an active and a passive component to it. Try to understand this. Sure, we are to hold tightly to Jesus and we are not to give up. Steadfastness is active. This is something we're called to do. But notice in verse 4, it's passive. It's let steadfastness have its full effect. Let something happen to you. 
This is a passive command. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That is, be held by Jesus. Hold tightly to Jesus, yes, don't give up. But also, be held. Let Jesus hold you fast. Rest in Him in such a way that He produces steadfastness in you. And that's easy. That's easy. Right? God isn't asking you to be heroic and courageous in the darkest moments of your life. God isn't saying, look, your biographer is standing here watching you so they can write down just how courageous and bold you've been in the face of this suffering so that Christians for hundreds of more years can read your story and be inspired by it. That's nowhere in Scripture. That's not what God is calling us to in the midst of trials. This is, this is so freeing to me. Ultimately, God desires for us just to hold on and not give up and let Him hold us to the end. And trials help us learn this. Trials humble us so that we lay down the sword, so that we put down the resources and just rest in the One who said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for my burden is light. It's easy. So count it pure joy when you meet trials because trials are producing this steadfastness in you. What's the goal of all of this? James tells us in verse 4. Notice verse 4 again. Here's the goal. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now the words perfect and complete are often used to refer to maturity and sanctification. And so I don't think it's possible to achieve sinless perfection in this life. I don't think it's possible to achieve exactly what James is saying right here in this life. But we know when Jesus comes, we will be glorified. We will be perfect and complete in that moment, lacking in nothing. But I think what James is doing is exactly what his half-brother Jesus did. And that's he's setting the bar high for us. He's showing us the goal that we are to strive for. We are to strive for completeness in the Christian life. We're to strive for perfection in all that we do. We're to strive to be like Jesus, the perfect and complete one. And so the goal is maturity and the process is trials. God uses the trials to make us complete and perfect, to sanctify us, to mature us. God uses trials to make us more like Jesus. Now, don't you wish there were another process? You see, we all want this goal, right? Every Christian wants to be mature, but we don't like the way God accomplishes it in our lives, do we? We pray, Father, make me more like Jesus. Father, sanctify me. Father, mature me. And God in His love says, okay, let's start by weaning you off of some of those things that you're relying on too heavily. Let's start by removing that safety net that you've constructed for yourself so that you'll find me to be your all in all. Church, the path to maturity runs on top of the road of suffering. Even nature understands this concept. Think of a butterfly. God has designed the butterfly 
so that it must struggle to free itself from the cocoon in order to build up the strength to be able to fly. I'm told if you try to free a butterfly from the struggle of the cocoon, you'll handicap it for life. It won't be strong enough to fly. It needs the struggle. It needs the suffering. See, the trials of our life produce endurance apart from which we'll be handicapped as Christians. The trials of life give us wings that cause us to fly for the glory of God. God has designed suffering for our good so that we might be mature and complete like our Savior. In fact, if we understand trials properly and what James is saying to us here, trials are an expression of God's love for His children, not an expression of His anger. They're an expression of His love. Think about as parents sometimes the things we have to do that are not pleasant for our kids. Think of the times where your kids, you've had to force medicine down their throat or you've had to hold them tight while they had blood drawn from them. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because we love them and we want them to be well, even if they don't understand it, even if it's unpleasant in the moment. You see, God loves you too much to allow you to remain shallow and weak as a Christian. The proper perspective on trials is that they are expressions of God's desire to conform us to the image of our Savior. Do you see how the proper perspective on trials is the foundation for obeying the command in verse 2 to count them as joy? James is saying we should meet trials with joy because we know something. We have some knowledge. We know that they are designed by God for our good. And so this text is really astonishing to me. This text tells us that we can know the purpose of our suffering in the midst of our suffering. You can know. You can know that God has ordained or allowed something in your life, and as you know that, you can have joy because God is in control and He's for you, not against you, in Christ. So do you know? Do you know? Well, now you know. You have no excuse for not knowing. The sovereign God of the universe is in control and he is working all things for your good if you love him and are called according to his purpose. And so James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And notice the promise of verse 12. We'll get here in a few weeks, but notice what James says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me close with two application thoughts. Here's the first one. Knowing these truths beforehand is more valuable than all the money in the world. Knowing these truths beforehand is more valuable than all the money in the world. Here's what I mean by beforehand. When you're in a painful trial, it's too late to learn these truths. Because suffering people lack perspective. 
learned this all too well. When you're suffering, you have either no or very skewed perspective. When you're in pain, your perspective is out of whack. And so you have to go into trials with God's perspective and God's truth so that you can fight against the temptation to give up, so that you can fight against the temptation to not endure. This is why it is so important to embrace these truths now, as soon as possible. Because how are you going to remain steadfast? How are you going to count it all joy when you meet trials? If you don't have this perspective, if you don't have this knowledge, trust me, when you're restrained in a hospital bed and it's 9.15 at night and the nurse closes the door and it feels like you've just been locked inside Bunyan's doubting castle and giant despair is there in the room with you, when you know you can't sleep because you have a tube in each nostril and you can't breathe right, when you fight and fight and fight and fight and fight with all your strength, to trust the Lord and stay faithful and you look up and it's only been two minutes and you wonder how you're going to do this for ten hours in the darkness. How are you going to remain steadfast if you don't know that God is at work for your good, sanctifying you, holding you fast to to Himself? When you stand over the grave of a child... And the sun is beating on your back and your chest feels like it's going to explode and you've cried every tear you can imagine. How are you going to count it all joy unless you know that God is in control and that He is holding you fast? True and right perspective has to be cultivated now And it has to be based on God's truth, not your feelings. Because in those moments, your own perspective and your own feelings will be way off. Learn these things now. It will be more valuable than all the money in the world. Secondly and finally, these truths are only true because Jesus shed his precious blood for you. These truths are only true because Jesus shed his precious blood for you. Notice again, James is addressing my brothers, that is, fellow Christians. These things are not true for unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot count it all joy because they don't know that God is in control. They aren't trusting that he's at work in their trials. Unbelievers can trust science or medicine or their own ability to pick themselves up, but they have no hope in suffering. And so we can only know these things are true because Jesus laid down his life in our place for our sins. We deserve wrath and condemnation, but Jesus gives us purpose and meaning in our suffering. Friends, no man knew suffering as intimately as our Savior. And yet... No man has had deeper joy than Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, endured 
the shame, the pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place so that we could be free to respond to trials with joy, knowing that the Father loves us and has good intentions for us. And so let's look to Jesus now, church family. Let's trust in Jesus now. Father, we trust in you. Lord Jesus, we trust in you. Holy Spirit, we trust in you. Tears are great and comforts few. We hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. We thank you for the promise that you will hold us fast. We rest in it now. In Jesus' name, amen.